I think it's been cool to hear some of these testimonies from NFL players. Tonight at uh, halftime, we'll have a short video that we will show, kind of going along with some of the things that these guys have talked about. So I hope that you're looking forward to joining us tonight. We're going to have a good time. Are you a good encourager? (laughs) I can tell you that I could take a snapshot. Uh, There are some people that are like shaking their head, some people kind of smiling because that's kind of their thing. They're an encourager. Other people like not looking at me, you know. There's a story about a guy who he really struggled with encouraging, you know. He, he kind of walked around with a perpetual scowl on his face. He just, encouraging wasn't his thing. And so one of his friends kind of confronted him. He's a little bit older in life. He's kind of midlife. <clears throat> and he says, man, you kind of look like you're always down the dumps. You look like there's always something bad happening. He says, man, that's not true. Well, you just, you kind of scowl and you just don't, you don't say good things with your mouth. And so he really, really wanted to be an encourager. And so he uh, gets up in the morning and he's gassing his car on his way to work. Gary, I think he went to the BP maybe. And uh, the attendant's there and he's like, oh, I've got to be an encourager, got to be an encourager. Hey man, I bet you your uh, liver holds a lot of bile. How's that for a first round of encouragement? Goes to the supermarket. Hey man, it's just not his habit, not his habit. So he's got this sweet young lady who's checking him out. At, uh, at Publix, and he, he's like, man, I'm going to encouragement. Man, you know what? Your teeth are the nicest shade of yellow I think I've ever seen. <laughs> you ever received an encouragement like that? Somebody sure is trying, but doggone it, man. You're better off not saying anything. Here's the deal. When we talk about encouragement, you don't have to be in church for a very long time to hear Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, which says, as Christians, our job is to consider, to promote, to stir up one another to love and good deeds. So our job as a church is not to come and sit in a pew and everyone face forward, fold your hands and be good boys and girls. Our job when we gather together is to consider, to promote, to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And so when we talk about the kind of encouragement that the Bible's talking about, we're not just saying, man, you got a nice smile. Or, you know what, man, nice hairdo. I like the cut, you know. Um, That's encouragement. But that's not the kind of encouragement that the Bible's talking about. The Bible's talking about how do we really, truly encourage people to love God more, to love people more, and get beyond just kind of the niceties of life. And so one of the things I want to, I want to encourage all of us to is a very important mission measure that we have talked about. As we seek to build strong families, as we seek to point everyone to putting their uh, trust and uh, reliance upon Christ the question is, how do we do that? How do we measure that? And so I'm going to lead with the mission measure because uh, they say that within the first four minutes, people either have decided that they're going to listen to you or they're not going to listen to you. So on the chance that you're going to tune me out, in the first four minutes, I want you to hear this mission measure because I want you to live with this question. Who is closer to Christ because they are close to you? Do you feel the weight of that? That there is indeed an expectation that the people that are within your sphere of influence are closer to Christ. Maybe not Christians yet, but they're closer to Christ than they would be than if you weren't in their life. So this morning, I'm going to address our men specifically, my brothers. Uh, It doesn't mean if you're a kid or you're of the female persuasion that there's nothing here for you. Um, I'm going to trust that you're smart enough that the application that I make to men specifically 
that you can see where the application is for you as well. And so um, please forgive maybe the one-sided application to my brothers, but I think that there's something here for all of you. So guys, here's, here's what I'm going to do. <clears throat> We're talking about this question. Who is closer to Christ by being close to me? And I'm going to give you guys a freebie, okay? Um, everybody likes a freebie. So I'm going to tell you two groups of people that absolutely should be able to answer this in the affirmative. So if you are a Christian and you are a family man, the Bible expects that you are contributing to the spiritual development of your spouse and your kids. So when I ask you the question, who is close to Christ by being close to me, there should be no hesitation to say without bragging or pride, you know what, I I believe that my wife and my kids are. Because the Bible expects that. The Bible expects it. They should answer this affirmatively. And one of the most beautiful illustrations of this point was this morning. Uh, Chris Hefner had the opportunity to baptize his daughter, Cameron. And so we can say beyond the shadow of a doubt that Cameron is closer to Christ because of who her dad is. Certainly because of who her mom is. Uh, But yes, also because of who her dad is. It takes a team. And what what an amazing and beautiful illustration of this principle. Listen to these uh, scripture passages. I'm just going to give you a collage of passages that talk about this reality. Proverbs 22, 6 says that we are to uh, teach a youth about the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. We have the opportunity to instill such foundational character and love for the Bible and for Christ and for his bride, the church, that when we train them up and really train their heart, they won't depart from that even when your influence is not the way that it is over the first 18 years. Deuteronomy 6, this is not in your your notes, it's not on the screen, but Deuteronomy 6 is the Shema that says, listen, the Lord our God is one, and the reality of who God is should be so real in your life that when you lie down, you talk about it. When you rise up, you talk about it. When you drive or walk somewhere, you talk about it. Everything you do, you should talk about it. You should have it tattooed on your forehead. You should have it on your forehands. So everywhere, it should be on the mantelpiece of your fireplace, your hearth. It should be on your door frame. The, the Word of God should be so active and living and vital and involved in your life that you're just constantly showering your kids with the Word of God and helping them to make good choices. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, <clears throat> don't stir up your kids to anger, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And I love this. First Chronicles twenty nine nineteen. This should be a prayer that every man in this room prays for their kids. It's a prayer that David prayed for his son Solomon. And he said, oh God, give my son Solomon a whole heart to keep and to do everything that you've commanded. That's a beautiful prayer. Don't you want a kid that from their heart wants to do everything that God has said for them to do? It's not just your kids that should be closer to Christ by being close to you. It goes for your spouse as well. And the Bible speaks with absolute clarity when it says that a husband's love for their wife should not just be sacrificial, it should be sanctifying. It should make them, it should contribute to their holiness. Now listen, your wife, she's a big girl, okay? She's responsible for her own actions. But as a leader of your home, you are also responsible for her actions too. And the Bible says that you should love her in such a way that she is closer to Christ because of you. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, listen to this, it's on the screen in front of you. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and he 
gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but to be holy and blameless. Now listen, I know none of you, Jesus, sometimes we don't even look like him very much, you know, unless you're in an Easter play and you wear the little diaper thing and you got to run around, Jonathan Brown, you know, kind of looking like that. Sometimes we don't look like Jesus. But the Bible says, husbands, love your wives like this, that sacrificed and gave himself up and made her holy. And I tell you what, guys, just being honest, that is the most intimidating verse in all of Scripture. That, that I have to love my wife like Jesus loved the church? Boy, that's a high standard. But we're not kidding anybody if we don't teach it. Because whether we teach it or not, it's still God's expectation because it's in His Word. And so this morning we had, we had a couple ladies who um, were prepared without their husband's knowledge to come and give testimony. You say, you know what? I really do believe that where I am in my walk with Christ is largely due to the influence of my husband. For a variety of circumstances, had somebody get sick, had two people get sick, and had one person say, I would absolutely have a heart attack if I spoke in front of people. And so um, <clears throat> there may be an opportunity in the future where we hear this. But just know that there were women who were prepared uh, to testify that, you know what? I am closer to Christ because of who I'm married to. And there shouldn't be a guy in the room that doesn't long for that to be what your wife said. It's a big deal. So honestly, if you're a Christian man, these two should be gimmies. You know, I mean, the Bible says, you know, the shadow exerts the most influence right there, you know, at home. It's important. So these two, your wife and kids, should be a gimme. But listen to what Jesus says in Luke 6.32. He's condemning the Pharisees, but I think it applies to this conversation too. He says, if we only love those who love us, what credit is that? Even sinners love those who love them. And so in the time remaining... Uh, we're going to look at John 4, and we're going to run through a passage of Scripture here, and we're just going to talk about what if we took seriously our responsibility to use our influence to pull other people to be closer to Christ because they were close to us. I want us to just consider for just a minute how easy it is to do this. Yes, it's hard, it's difficult, but you know what? It also can be incredibly easy. And so uh, my friend Patrick is going to come and he's going to share a testimony here and he's going to tell you a little bit about why he is closer to Christ because of what somebody has done for him. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Patrick Murphy. Um, my wife Angie and I have been uh, members of Northside for about nine months. We have uh, two sons. Noah is uh, 18 and is currently a freshman at uh, USC. And our younger son, Sean, is uh, two years old. The question has been asked, who is closer to Christ because they know you? And I actually want to tell you why I'm closer to Christ today. A couple of years ago, Angie wanted to find a church for us to attend. And um, since we had a child on the way, I agreed. I had a good uh, church experience as a child. And although I... Uh, completely gotten away from living as a Christian. I still wanted that for my uh, my son. 
to get that good Christian background, but honestly, I had no interest in doing it for myself. She found a startup church near our home, and we attended for several months. Um, during that time, Sean was born, um, and suddenly life became busy, and um, really, we never got involved other than just occasionally attending on Sundays. Um, and due to the size of the church, uh, there was really no youth group. Our son Noah was one of the only teenagers, and there really wasn't much there for him. But thankfully, um, during this time, he was invited by a friend to attend his youth group at his church. Um, and not only did he go, he kept going. And it got our attention, and we decided we should check out the church. It was north side. We quickly felt at home, and uh, not only um, did we love what the youth uh, program was doing for Noah, but we also felt welcome in a way that was really hard to describe. Um, we saw that this was a church with a loving, caring, committed group of members. And I didn't start coming here for myself, but ended up realizing what I was missing. After attending for a while, uh, we eventually decided to become members. Angie and I were baptized back in June. And my life has definitely changed for the better in this past year. I've gone from someone going through the motions to someone constantly striving to be a better father, husband, co-worker, and a member of the community. All of this because I'm closer to Christ. And I doubt I could say that had I not walked through those very doors. And I would never have done that had my son not accepted a simple invite from a good friend cared enough about him to invite him to church. So uh, to answer the question of why I'm closer to Christ today, the answer is simple. Um, my, because my son was invited here by a good friend who cared about him, raised by a great family. So think about that when you think about that question. It's not just who you're directly trying to affect that you can reach through your actions. I told him I'll name names if he doesn't. John Bennett loves his church and loves his youth group. And so as a junior, maybe, in high school, sophomore, you know, he invited a friend of his that needed a church to be involved. And, and little did he know, I mean, John doesn't even know about this, you know, that we're having this little talk today. Little did he know but that by inviting his friend in high school, he would be a change agent for an entire family. You know, and now Patrick gets up at, when I remember to show up, he gets up at 6 o'clock for a theology breakfast on Thursday morning. You know, he never would have dreamed that he'd be doing this a couple of years ago. And um, now the dots have all gotten connected. He had a church background. They understand the gospel clearly, and they want to live out the implications of what that means. And it all started because a high school kid invited another high school kid. You can do that, can't you? Well, last week we gave you business cards to say, Listen, if we got to give out free stuff to get you to bring uh, your friends to church, we'll do it. We'll give you an excuse. I mean, we, we think church is an excuse enough. But we'll, we'll, we'll find some way to induce. We'll have a party with free food. We'll find a way to help you do it. But it's as simple as maybe having a little conversation. Isn't that cool? Patrick, thank you for doing that. <clears throat> well, in the time we have left, I want to point out four uh, brief points. We're going to fly, so put your... Put your listening ears on. We're going to run through John 4 here 
really quickly. And we're going to talk about if you want to be the kind of person who wants to... Um, you want this year for people to be close to Christ because they're close to you. What needs to change? Well, the very first thing is that you've got to work on attitudes that motivate action. You've got to work on attitudes that motivate action. And as an example of this, we're going to read John chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> By the way, that's page 752 in the pew Bible in front of you if you don't want to read from the screen behind me. Here's what the Word of God says. Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, even though Jesus himself was not baptizing, his disciples were doing it. So he left Judea and went again to Galilee, and he had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about six in the evening. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Here's a couple points really briefly. Verse 4, it says that Jesus had to take the route that he traveled. Now the truth is, if you look at a map and you understand anything about travel in the Holy Lands at this time, there were at least two, um, maybe three, if I'm remembering correctly, different routes that he could take. And the predominant reason that there were other routes to take is because Jews did not want to even set foot in Samaritan territory. The, the story b- uh, between the Jews and the Samaritans, the reason that they don't associate with each other. See, the Samaritans would consider themselves good Jews, and they would try to keep the law, and they would try to worship rightly. But because they had intermarried whenever their nation had been conquered and people had been um, kind of uh, uh, infiltrated, uh, brought in by the, the governing power, and they had intermarried, they were now considered mixed breed. They weren't pure bloods. And so even though they considered themselves good Jews in their theology, Jews treated them like Gentiles because it doesn't matter how much they tried to fit in, they just weren't going to do it because of their heritage. And so the truth is most Jews, if they're following the major trade routes, there were other options. And yet verse 4 says that Jesus had to go this way. I don't think the had was an issue of expedience. Hey, this just happens to be the closest way. I map quested it, and it's like 20 miles shorter. No, that wasn't it. I think the had to was a compulsion because Jesus knew he was going to meet somebody. So he had an attitude to say, you know what, uh, this, right, this route might cause me a little more criticism, but it's the way that I need to go. Also, uh, not only did he have an attitude that maybe took the longer route for the purpose of meeting this person, because he was God after all, he knew what was going to happen, but he also had all these uh, different things to overcome. He says, you know, what are you doing as a Jewish man asking me for a drink? He had all these kinds of traditions that he broke with. Number one, he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. That was enough to be a deal breaker right there. But he was a man and she was a woman. And that just didn't happen. You don't have water cooler conversations cross-gender. And you'll actually see in the story where Jesus tries to correct that. He's like, hey, this is kind of a chance encounter. Uh, Let's get your husband here just so we keep things above board. Uh, There was a tradition there. And then lastly, did you notice why Jesus got left at the well? The disciples went into town to go buy food. Why did Jesus get stuck at the well? He's tired. I love that. The Son of God, God himself. But he's a man. Tired. So he rests at the well. I don't know about you, but like godliness in my life goes down when I'm tired. And so like, uh, if you want me godly, 
well-fed and well-rested, I'm doing a lot better, you know. Um, I'm not eating well, I'm not sleeping well, or if I have to hear Keith Patterson snoring two rooms over, um, my, <laughs> my, my godliness goes down quick. Papa Bear, thank you, man. Um, love that. And so here's the deal. It says Jesus is weary. And, and, and as a pastor, I can tell you on good authority, weariness is an excuse for all kinds of things. You know what? I'm tired. I'm not going to come tonight. You know what? I'm tired. I'm not going to go to church today. You know what? I'm tired. I'm not going to share with that person. You know what? I'm tired. I got other things to do. Jesus had an attitude that says, you know what? It is not about me. Yes, I'm tired. I want something to eat. I want a drink. Get me a drink. But he wanted to do what was most important. And so he did the right thing. He took the initiative and he spoke to a woman that maybe he should not ought to. And there's nothing wrong that happens in the interaction. Everything's above board. But he takes the initiative to do something because he has the right attitude. And guys, listen, it's not enough to have a good attitude. Well, I love them in my heart. Okay, well, if you love them in your heart, then love them with, love them with your life, love them with your words. Don't just love your coworkers. That, that's pathetic. Do something about it. Take the initiative to talk to them. And that kind of brings up our second point. That if you want to be the kind of person that helps people get pulled closer to Christ by being close to you, not only must you have the kind of attitude that makes you do the right things like Jesus does, but you will always have to work at communicating the big idea. And when you're talking to a non-Christian, you're not just supposed to talk news, weather, and sports. You want to get to the gospel. And so we see this happen in verses 10 through 15. Look at how this happens in Jesus' encounter. So Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you'd ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and he drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock. She thought Jesus was insulting the well and saying he could do something better. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to come here every day to draw water. Jesus here gets pretty creative. You know, I mean, what relationship does he have with this woman? Zero. He's just met her. So what, do you ha- what does he have in common with a woman? Not much. She's a woman. He's a man. She's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. The only thing that they have in common is the well, the water, that they're both thirsty. So Jesus tries to play off of this idea. What is the need in your life that you would most need to have satisfied? That's a really deep question. And so he plays off of this water, living water, eternal life. Water gives life, but living water gives eternal life. And here's the thing that I love about this. We're saying that you're always going to have to work at communicating the big idea. Here's the deal. Jesus uses this really sophisticated kind of analogy about living water. And you know what? It didn't work. Because like, if you have to explain your illustration, guess what happens? Your illustration wasn't all that good. Okay, you follow me? Jesus is saying living water, and she's like, great. I can get rid of this stinking water pot and not have to carry it around anymore. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about water. He has to go in. He has to explain it a little bit more. Do you know what? He didn't give up. And I think for us, the first time we experienced some kind of, oh, that didn't go so well, we like wave the white flag and we take off running and we're never going to talk to that person about Jesus ever again. 
But Jesus perseveres. You know, his first attempt, even for God, didn't seem to go all that well. You know, he didn't say, hey, listen, you know, if you knew who I was and uh, asked me for water, I'd give you living water. And she bowed on her knees and cried holy and said, save me now, I beseech thee, dear God. It doesn't happen. There's more to the conversation that has to happen. And so it doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter how many plans you have learned. It doesn't matter how, many, how much scripture you have memorized. Because the gospel doesn't change. But the way we present it might be very different to people because their life situation is different. And a lot of times the church words that we use, listen, you talk about, to someone about being washed in the blood of the lamb, they're calling the police on you. You know, they're going, what in the world are they doing? They got animal sacrifice at that church. And so you have to work at communicating the idea. The idea doesn't change, but the presentation does. And Jesus is trying to take a common everyday thing and use it to communicate spiritual truth. He's asking her, what is that, what is that need that you need satisfied? And the truth is for us as church people, I think we're so out of tune, we don't even know what it is for us. We're tempted to you know, say, God, Jesus, the Bible, you know, give the Sunday school answer. What is the need in your life that you need most that Jesus can meet? It's a pretty advanced question. And so it becomes clear that she's thinking that this is a convenience. Hey, listen, I'm going to have indoor plumbing after this. You know, I'm not going to have to worry about going to get water. She's thinking it's about a convenience, and Jesus is wanting to communicate something more. And so that leads to our third point. When you're working at communicating the big idea, you will have to lovingly dive into deep conversations. Man, if you're having a conversation with someone about the gospel, there's going to be some hard stuff that comes up. And you know what it did for Jesus, too? Look at verses 16 through 26. Sir, I want this water. Give it to me so I don't have to come here. Verse 16, go call your husband, Jesus told her, and come back here. He wants to kind of keep it above board. It's, you know, social taboo. Verse 17, I don't have a husband, she answered. You have answered correctly, Jesus said, when you said, I don't have a husband. Because you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus just commended her for being a truth teller. But then he also displays that he knows the whole story, not just the little smidgen of truth that she was willing to reveal. He says, I know it all. So here's the question, all right? You go to work tomorrow. If this happens to you at the water cooler, you know, you go up and go, man, hey, you know, that's good water, you know? That's a big, heavy bottle. I saw him carried in. It's fresh, man. It's good stuff. And the guy goes, yeah, well, tell me about the argument you had with your wife last night. You're like, say what? You work for NSA? You know, big brother listening. Jesus kind of does that to her. And he says, you know what? You're right. You don't have a husband because you're shacking up with a guy and you've been married five times already. Things just got a little personal, didn't they? And what happens when you get personal? Like, like you know, when, they, when your illustration, you have not communicated well, you want to run away? you start to get personal and you start to apply the gospel, they start to back up and they start to move away. And Jesus kind of lovingly, without condemning her sinfulness and and immorality, demonstrates that he wants to know her more and with gentleness and concern pursues the conversation. He doesn't look like a jerk who's ready to cast the stone. He's not. He's diving into a deep and just a tad bit uncomfortable conversation look what it says sir the woman replied i see that you are a prophet amazing clarity there duh and then she goes our fathers worshiped on this mountain yet you jews say that the place the place to worship is in jerusalem she's going to do everything she can to redirect the message hey we're not talking about me let's talk about like religious politics 
You know, what do you think about Donald Trump? You know, let me get the attention off of me. And what, what, what can I do? So, hey, which mountain do you think? Jesus tells her, verse 20, And believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Verse 26, I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. Things start to get personal. She tries to throw him off the trail. She wants to have a debate about religious politics, and Jesus is not thrown off by distractions. He quickly answers. She thought she was all right spiritually, Jesus is not interested in getting into a spiritual argument. He's concerned about winning the woman, not winning the argument. And finally, after not, both of them not running away, persevering through this message, by verse 25, she gets to the point that Jesus wants her to be at. She goes, hey, listen, all this stuff about spirit and truth, I don't get it. But you know what? When the Messiah comes, he's going to teach us everything, and then we'll be good. And Jesus says, you know, dun, dun, dun. I'm he. And it's kind of curious because the whole conversation stops at this point. Jesus had dove into deep conversation. And we get so squeamish when people say, well, what's your church think about divorce? Well, what's your church think about alcohol? Well, what's your church think about political candidates? What's your church think about this? Does your church handle snakes? You can answer that one, absolutely not. Um, <clears throat> what's this? What's that? And you just have to understand, people will throw up smoke screens to not talk about the thing that is most important. You've got to persevere. You've got to push through because there is gold to be mined if you will go. And our fourth and final point, we'll look at verses 27 through 42, and it's this point. You have to pray that God makes the mission as important as your meals. Listen, for some of you, like if I have one good meal a day, I'm, I'm pretty good. I know that's not healthy. They say you're supposed to have like 32 little meals a day or something like that. Um, <clears throat> like, if I have a big breakfast, I don't eat the rest of the day. That's just kind of the way it kind of happens for me. Or if I have a big lunch, then I snack on something at dinner. But for some of you, after about three hours, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, we, we went to an all-you-can-eat Chick-fil-A buffet yesterday in Georgia. It was glorious. I mean, I had like five pounds of bacon. It was awesome. Sorry, Troy, you know, we, we sent you some pictures. So, <clears throat> but like, I ate breakfast, and I was done for the day. But as soon as we get on the bus to come home from this men's conference, like, they're asking, all right, who's hungry? I'm like, dear God, no. I don't want to eat any more food. But you know what? We stopped within about half an hour. I'm like, all right, if everybody else is eating, I'm eating. And then I get home, and Mark's like, do you need something for dinner? I'm like, no, 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 no food. No food. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. <clears throat> but inevitably, there comes a point where no matter, no matter how square your meal was earlier in the day, it's different for everybody. There comes a point where your stomach is letting you know, hey, I'm still here. I would love for you to pay me some attention. And, and, and the question is, like, if your soul did the same thing, say, hey, 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 there's somebody around here that needs you to share with them, and I have an appetite to be the one to do it. Feed me. How would you react spiritually if, like, your spiritual stomach responded like this? And that's the whole point that Jesus is getting to, that mission 
has to be as important for us as meals because that's exactly what Jesus says. Look at what happens in verse 27. So Jesus says, I'm he. Just then, his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? And then I love this, verse 28. Why did the woman come to the well? To get water, verse 28. Then the woman left her water jar. That's amazing. She thinks she knows what she wants. She forgets about it. She leaves the tool that she needs to take water back. So sometime later, she had to come back. She had to fill that jar up. She had to get it full. But right now, that's not the most important thing. So the woman left the jar and she went into the town and she told the men, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And they left the town and they made their way to him. And I love the way John writes this. In the meantime, so at the same time that the woman is running back to go talk to people, at the same time, Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples. In the meantime, the disciples are saying, Rabbi, eat something. And he said, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. That really confused the disciples because they go, hey, who brought Jesus some food? And Jesus said, hey, just to clarify, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields for they are ready for harvest. And I think while he's saying this, all these townspeople that the woman has just said, you gotta come check this out. Jesus said, open up your eyes and turn around because here's a whole army of people that are coming and they're coming to ask about who I am. Open your eyes because here's what's gonna happen. The fields, they're ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and he's gathering fruit for eternal life. And the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. Jesus said, I've already sowed the seed. All you gotta do is pick it up. I'm present already. You're not doing all the work. You might think you're doing all the work, but I've already been there before you. I'll be there after you. I'm there while you're there. All you need to do is be faithful to reap it. I sent you to reap what you did not labor for. For others have labored and you are about to benefit from their labor. Verse 39, now many Samaritans came from that town and they believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. Therefore, when the Samaritans came to to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there for two more days. Many more believed because of what he said. And then they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. I love this. The disciples come back. They say, Jesus, man, you need to get something to eat. He goes, you know what? I'm not worried about food. The woman comes to the well. I got to get some water. She's not worried about water. And, and, and the amazing thing that is happening with this woman is Jesus has told her, go call your husband. And she says, I can't. And yet she leaves her water part at the well and she goes and she calls the entire village. It's amazing to see how God in a moment has so transformed a woman to make her a flaming evangelist. I mean, like, she's like Billietta Graham in the first century. You know, she's getting it done and people are coming. So the disciples are encouraging Jesus to eat and he says, no, I've got something that sustains me more deeply than the best home-cooked meal. And he uses this agricultural metaphor. He says, disciples, listen, While you're concerned about the things of this world, I want you to know what's happening. Turn around and look. Here they come. And you didn't do any of the work, but I'm going to let you reap the harvest. I'm going to let you be a part of this. And Jesus is saying the accomplishment of the mission is more important than physical food or water. And so almost an entire village gets saved. 
is Jesus happened to spend 48 hours there. Two days. And here's, here's where I want to get with this, okay? Um, guys, just being honest. Some of us have shared a bed with the same woman for 20 years. And she's not any closer to Christ than she was in the night you got married. We have the opportunity as parents to actively be involved in, for the first 18 years. And then maybe that boomerang thing happens and they come back. So let's just round it up and say for 25 years, you've got an opportunity to actively be involved in parenting. God did not put your wife in your life because you've matched up on 23 points of compatibility. God has put your wife in your life to be your helpmate and for you to have a responsibility to love her and make her more like Christ. Your kids are not some random biological accident of DNA and they just kind of, this is what popped out. God sovereignly has placed your kids in your life for you to shepherd them, to nurture their souls. You don't work where you work to get a paycheck. God is sovereignly arranged because you might be the only Christian at your workplace and the only way that people are going to hear because you know what? God's just not going to send an angel to do it when you're right there. So God has sovereignly arranged for you to be right there and yet we are around lost people all the time but we don't know them. And there are people that cannot say that they are closer to Christ because they are closer to us. And for Jesus, Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He tells us in the Great Commission, go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing, teaching. That word go doesn't mean like if you're going to go, like go to Africa, go to India. <clears throat> the better way to translate is as you are going. So as you go to school, as you go to the gas station, as you go to the supermarket, as you go wherever, share. And friends, listen, this is what Jesus did. He took the initiative. And as he was going, he stopped for two days and everybody's life was different because of it. And I just sit there and I go, why is our witness so anemic? Why is our witness on life support? Why are we spending time with people for years and years and years and they're not any closer when all Jesus needs is two days? I know you're not Jesus. I'm not either. And you know, there are times that we don't look like him. I'm not asking you to transform your wife or your kids or your co-workers' lives in two days. That's a Jesus-sized task. But over the course of your life, shouldn't there be people that answer the question that, yes, I am closer to Christ because of what he has done? Change lives. Change lives. And that's what God calls us to do. Pray with me, please. God, today... We just pray that you put a burden in our heart to see people who are closer to Christ. God, it's not our job to save them, but it is our job to be faithful to talk about our beloved. God, we love you and we thank you for the things that you've done in our life and we ask that you help us to make our love for you more tangible. God, you tell us that anybody who is here who might feel a million miles away from God, if we would just agree with you that we're messed up, that we are a sinner and that you are who you say you are. You are God. You are, a, you are the sacrifice for our sins and by placing our trust in you, you will wash us as white as snow. You will clear the board. You will give us a fresh start. You will allow us to be redeemed. God, I pray that if there's someone here who needs to take that first step, 
of getting close to Christ, that today could be the day for them. But God, for the vast majority of us, we have known you and we have sung about our love for you and yet no one is closer to Christ because of us. Allow that to change. And we don't pray for it to happen to someone else. We pray for it to happen to us. That you will embolden us to have the right attitudes and actions, to jump into uh, learning how to communicate better, to be willing to dive deep in a non-condemning, loving and gracious way, that you'll make the mission more important to us than a meal, that we'll skip a meal for the privilege and the priority of sharing the gospel with others. God, you have the ability to change our hearts because you already have, and you will. And you'll call us to repent as only you can, because I can't do that. Lord, I pray that you break our hearts and you make them more like Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.